You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Phalanxes of Atlans by F. V. W. Mason Chapter 3 A bright yellow glare steadily increased to mark the end of the tunnel down which the two had progressed. Then, with the sharp abruptness of a hand-clap, there sounded a loud challenge in that unintelligible Atlantean language, above which the hiss of steam could be loudly heard. Instantly the Atlantean prince strode forward, a commanding figure. Momentarily his helmet and the dangling grenade-like bombs were sharply outlined against that unearthly yellow light. He raised his hand and dropped it, palm outward, to his chin, in what must have been a salute. The hissing sound of steam then faded into silence. Followed at a respectful distance by a pair of silent, bronze-helmeted hoplites, Nelson and his guide descended a narrow stair, which broadened at the base. It was a very long staircase, composed of perhaps two or three hundred steps, which were occasionally interrupted by wide stone terraces. On these level spaces were fixed what appeared to be enormous field guns of glittering brass. They were similar, yet somehow oddly dissimilar, to the great guns Nelson had seen in France. "'Behold, O wanderer,' Hero Giles declaimed impressively, the lands of Atlans and Jarmuth. It was a weird landscape that met Nelson's half-unbelieving gaze, a landscape green with that brilliance peculiar to spring meadows, lying beneath the same deep blue sky that overarched the surrounding barren ice-fields which hemmed in this astounding valley. A slight smile played over Hero Giles's thin lips as he watched the amazed aviator. "'The splendor of our country must indeed astound thee,' he observed having come from the dreary fastness of the outer ice-world. But come, we are now to pass the great retortii guarding the entrance into the valley." Nelson's eyes turned again to the weapons that so oddly resembled field-guns. He examined them closely, inspecting them narrowly for the differences he knew must exist between them and the artillery that had thundered during the War of the Nations. The chief difference lay in the mounting of these starkly beautiful weapons. They seemed to be fixed on a movable pivot set into the coal-black rock itself. Like modern artillery, these curious pieces of ordnance bore a bronze shield to protect their crews, through which projected the long and very narrow barrels of the guns. Grouped like cannoneers about their piece stood various red-crested Atlantean artillerymen. At a glance, Nelson recognized the difference in their equipment from that of the spearmen behind them. These former bore no shields, no swords or bombs, but wore that same kind of leather body armor which graced the powerful limbs of Hero Giles. Their helmets, too, were different. Only the dolphin crest with a tuft of red feathers sprouting from it bore any resemblance to those of the infantry, and, moreover, the artillerymen's eyes were shielded by goggles with thick blue lenses. As the hero approached, officers among them saluted, then sank on one knee with head humbly bent. "'Rather odd-looking guns,' commented Nelson. "'I'm not much of an artilleryman, but I'm wondering how you take up the recoil.' The Atlantean's laugh, which always reminded his guest of the purr of a tiger, rang out. "'Why, Mary, good sir, there is no recoil. These guns do not use that powder which Sir Henry, founder of our line, did speak of. Thou wouldst see one fired?' His curiosity immeasurably piqued. Nelson nodded, whereupon the Atlantean wheeled about and barked a brief command. 
With truly Prussian precision the artillerymen sprang to their posts, some to a series of levers which sprouted from the rock platform without any apparent connection, and some to wheels and gauges of varying size that clustered in bewildering intricacy about the breech of the great brass gun. Markest thou that tree yonder on the ledge of the valley? The Atlantean's blunt outstretched finger indicated a towering pine, sprouting from among a mass of reddish volcanic rock at the rim of that new world. Yes, I see it, but— Nelson was astounded. A pine tree in the upper Arctic. That alone was sufficient cause for amazement. From a stiff red-plumed gun-captain issued a brief series of commands which set the wonderfully drilled crew to silently adjusting their training and elevating mechanism. Click! Clack! Siss! All up and down the vast staircase other gun crews stood watching. Nelson saw their weird bluish goggles raised to that platform, where for all the world like a coast-defense howitzer the great cannon swung majestically about on the ponderous brazen column, which seemed to support it. Gradually the muzzle was elevated, then traversed a few feet, to finally come to a halt. "'Jekyll! A hero!' shouted the gun-captain, his hand raised to hero Giles. "'Thou art ready, friend Nelson?' he inquired in tolerant amusement. "'Mark well yon pine-tree. Store!' Nelson saw one of the armored cannoneers bend forward, firmly grasp a short lever with both hands. In anticipation of a terrific report, the aviator pressed fingertips to his ears. There followed not a thundering crash, but a curious, eerie, high-pitched scream rather like that of a fire-siren. There was no smoke. Nelson's incredulous eyes sought the muzzle of the gun, and detected issuing from it what appeared to be a thin, white rod. This shimmering stream of silver shot straight towards the pine-tree, gradually widening and giving off feathery billows of steam. In a fraction of a moment the target was completely veiled from sight in a furious pall of clouds which, to Nelson's great astonishment, did not dissipate nor condense with the speed of ordinary steam. Nava! With impressive suddenness the screaming sound faded, leaving a sort of stunned silence on the gun platform. The gunners stalked back to their original stations. Slowly, reluctantly, the mist enveloping the pine-tree cleared away, and Nelson felt a chill creeping up his spine. The pine was a good three hundred yards away, yet now it sagged limp to earth, stripped of bark, twigs and needles, only the bright yellow trunk and major branches remaining. "'That tree was a good two feet thick,' mused the astounded aviator. Yet the steam-gun bent it like a sapling. My God! What would it do to a man?' "'What thinkest thou of our retortii?' The Atlantean's beard glinted like metal as he shook with a grim silent laughter. "'These great retortii can shoot half a league and will blast any living thing in their path.' I tell thee, friend Nelson, the discharge of even a small retortii will strip the flesh from a man's bones as a peasant strips the husk from an ear of corn. Fearful, terrible, was Nelson's awed comment. Is there no defense against them? Of course. The hero's green feather-crested helmet gleamed with a nod. Was there ever an instrument of war that had not its defense? Yea, we have the blue vapor to shatter steam particles. It is called the blue maxima. Thou wilt presently see some of our troops armed with it. But where does this steam come from? How is it generated? 
These two were the first of a host of questions which trembled on Nelson's lips. "'The steam,' replied the Atlantean, "'comes from the earth. We compress it many times, then feed it into our retortii. Without the heat of Mother Earth and our flame-suns we would all perish. Steam is our motive-power, our defense, and our enemy.' He flung his hand towards the vast valley stretched before them. It was hemmed in on either side by colossal, breathtaking mountain ranges, whose caps shone and glittered with an eternal snow. "'Some foothills! They must rise all of twenty-five thousand feet from the valley floor,' decided the aviator. "'And I should imagine this valley is a good mile below sea level. Yes, that must be it. This nightmare country lies in a huge geographical fault, something like the Dead Sea.' Mile after mile he could see fertile green land stretching away toward some low undulating hills on the horizon. Atlans was very thickly settled. That he recognized at once, for the terrain was divided and subdivided into a vast checkerboard, such as he had seen in France and Germany, while terraces, green with produce, had been laboriously gouged out of the frowning mountainsides. Then his eye encountered the source of that curious amber light which pervaded the whole valley, a titanic flaming gas vent, spouted like a cyclopean torch from the peak of a nearby mountain. Its steady, subdued roar struck Nelson's ear as he turned away his eyes, for the glare was too intense to be long endured. Further down the valley were two more such incandescent vents, shooting their flaming tongues boldly into the sky, warming the air, and casting that rich amber radiance over all. "'That is Mount Asa nearest us,' the Atlantean's voice came as though from a long distance. Victor Nelson was too staggered, too unspeakably amazed, to register the fact of the hero's proximity. Below are Pelion and Gilboa, which with Jabur, the greatest of all the flames, illuminate and warm the valley. Nelson's eye, trained to be all-observant, ranged far and wide, noting the presence of many lacy, frothing geysers which spouted at varying intervals. There were also many steaming ponds and waterfalls, which sprang in smoky confusion from the rock palisades to either side. Nearer at hand he could distinguish a number of huge stone structures, evidently forts and public buildings, strategically placed all about where more of those terrible brass retortii, gleaming dully under the incandescent glare of the flame sun. "'Come!' cried Hero Giles, with an impatient gesture of his hand. "'We must e'en hasten to the tube-road terminal. Word has long since been sent to Heliopolis of thy arrival.' Downwards into the valley, which grew ever warmer and more fertile, the Atlantean led on, explaining a thousand and one details to the astounded aviator. Presently they approached the nearest of the great stone structures, and Nelson received yet another shock. In a courtyard was drilling what would correspond to a troop of cavalry in the outer world. In orderly ranks the troopers wheeled, marched, and countermarched, their brazen armor twinkling and clashing softly as they carried out their evolutions with an amazing precision. But what astonished Nelson was the fact that each of these strange troopers bestrode a lithe, long-limbed variety of dinosaur, a good half smaller than the allosauri he had encountered in the tunnel. These agile creatures ran about on their hind legs with astonishing speed, using a long reptilian tail as a balance. On the back of each trooper was fastened a compact circular copper tank from which sprouted a flexible metal hose 
that ended in what looked like a ponderous type of pistol. In distinction to the red of the artillerymen and the blue of the hoplites, these curious cavalrymen wore brilliant crests of yellow feathers, and from their lance-tips fluttered tiny pennons of that same color. They must travel at least as fast as a racehorse, decided the aviator, after studying the swift evolutions of the scaly chargers. To his ears came the curious dry scrape and rattle of their horny claws on the stone pavement of the drill-yard. He would have lingered to see more, for those grotesque lizard-like chargers interested him immensely, but Hero Giles beckoned imperiously. So, dropping the Winchester to the hollow of his arm, Nelson followed him into the brilliantly gas-lit depths of the great structure. Everywhere were red-bearded, white-skinned soldiers, staring at him with the frank curiosity of children. Powerful, magnificently built fellows they were, all in uniforms of different designs. The walls about him, Nelson noticed, were covered with really beautiful friezes, depicting various warlike scenes in that pure beauty of proportion found only in ancient Grecian temples. On and on, through resounding tunnels, past busy markets and barracks, hurried the two travelers. Then the Atlantean halted before a gracefully arched doorway, where stood two hoplites, who immediately lowered spears to bar the passage. At a word from Hero Giles, however, they saluted and fell back in position, immovable, grim guardians. Inside was a short staircase, beautifully wrought of bronze. Up this flashed the Atlantean's mail-clad body. Then he came to a halt under the direct rays of a blinding light. Nelson, on arriving above, discovered that the chamber was lined with jointless brass, about ten feet high, and circular in shape. "'What's this?' he demanded curiously. "'The terminal of the tube-road. In a moment thou shalt see the great cylinder arrive.' The words were hardly by the hero's lips when there appeared noiselessly and amid a great rush of air a huge metal cylinder that ran upon a sort of track. It rumbled up to the edge of the platform, and from its end a small door was opened. Hero Giles exchanged a few sentences with an elderly man who appeared to act as control-master, then he indicated the glowing doorway of the cylinder. Firmly clutching his Winchester, Nelson bowed his head and stepped inside, there to discover a luxury he had never anticipated. The interior of the cylinder was brilliantly lit, and on both sides were ranged wide divans, strewn with many silken cushions. In a rack nearby were several graceful glass amphora, filled with red and tawny wine. The cylinder must be about thirty feet long, the marveling American told himself, and about ten feet in diameter. Guess it works on the same principle as the compressed air tubes the department stores use to send change with. Gingerly he tested the nearest divan, and marveled at the curious softness of what appeared to be a gigantic tiger-skin. Meanwhile, Hero Giles entered, his stern features even more serious, but with him was a younger man who resembled him not a little. "'Fair brother,' said the Atlantean to his companion, "'this is he of whom I spoke. Friend Nelson, this is Hero John, my next youngest brother. He too speaks the language of the great Sir Henry Hudson.' The metallic clang of the door being shut brought a sharp qualm to Nelson's heart. "'What are they doing?' he demanded quickly. The menials bolt the door beyond, explained Hero Giles, with amused gravity. In a moment our cylinder will be placed in the dispatching chamber, where steam pressure will be exerted. We shall then be hurled through this vacuum tube road, 
to Heliopolis, greatest city of Atlans. In an hour we will be there. Outside sounded the sudden insistent clangor of a gong, and immediately the hiss of steam grew louder. The car shuddered as the hissing noise rose to an eerie scream, and then all at once the cylinder leaped forward, nearly hurling Nelson from his seat. He struggled as best he might to gain his equilibrium, for the eyes of the others were on him. Then, more smoothly, the great cylinder gathered speed and hurtled on through the darkness of the tube road towards Heliopolis, where Victor Nelson would read the Book of Fate. End of chapter 3